You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Artie Farsby podcast. Some research, come on, Dr. Rad. I am a world expert on belly button flies. This season is all about steam. Not steam like from a kettle or an old train. Steam as in science, technology, engineering, art and maths. You cannot explain that unless you know that atoms exist. We talk to your favourite creative thinkers to explore the connections between science and creativity. This talk was recorded as a live stream conversation. Up next, Dr. Carl. Hi there, my name is Angharad Yo, but you can call me Rad. I'm a television and radio presenter, and today I'm going to be your host for this event that is coming live out of the Sydney Opera House. Today, the land that we're on is called Benelong Point. But the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people, called this place Jubagali. I'd like to acknowledge their ongoing, unbroken connection to the beautiful land and waters that are here and pay my respect to their elders past, present and future. Now, we have schools joining us from all over the country today because we have a very special guest that we're going to chat to. His name is Dr. Carl, and he has had an absolutely extensive career. In fact, I've got a whole laundry list of things that he's done, which includes being a physicist, a laborer, a roadie for bands, a car mechanic, a filmmaker, a biomedical engineer, taxi driver, TV weatherman, and a medical doctor at the Children's Hospital in Sydney. And hello to the students who are tuning in and joining us from there today. He's also the author of 47 books and counting, and his most recent book was published last year. It was called Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science. So today he is with us to chat all things science. Please welcome Dr. Carl. Hi, Dr. Rad, and you left out the bit where I was test driving four-wheel drives in the Australian outback <laughs> for two decades, but yes, here we Amazing. are. Let's rock for the students. What haven't you done, honestly? So Had a baby. <laughs> so we want to get to know you a little bit more. Where did your science journey start? Because obviously you've done a lot of different things, but what sparked you to become the scientist that you are now? One single thing, Curiosity. I remember walking down the street one day and thinking, oh, look at that, the sky's blue. Why isn't it green? The grass is green, but why isn't it blue? (laughs) And that started me trying to understand the world around me. That's amazing. I love that it was something so simple and that yet it's taken you on this incredible journey. How would you describe what you do now? Um, What is it that you would have as your job description? Um, Well, if you've watched Xena the Warrior Woman, you would know (laughs) that one of the most respected people in that series was the storyteller who would go from village to village. So I see myself now as a storyteller telling stories about the universe around us. I love that you see yourself as a storyteller and not like a science communicator or something like that. Well, stories are very important because we have our brains wired up to be able to remember a story. So if I tell you a long story about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you can remember that story. But if I were to tell you the words that make up that story in alphabetical order, you can give them back to me. But the whole story you capture as a single snapshot. And is that how your mind works, that you find if someone tells you a story, you remember it better and that's why you tell stories? 
Um, yes, but even more, um, when I read stuff, I think that's interesting, but is it real? So I then make four stories up every week and um, that can take maybe 15, 20 hours a week. And uh, and when you write the story, it forces you to think, oh, that doesn't make sense because here they say that and here they say that. And I don't understand anyway. Uh, why, why should I believe them? And then so then you go down a pathway. And if you write four stories a week for 40 years, after a while, you get to know a little bit. That's also why you have 47 books. Uh, so what would you say has been your favourite job in all the jobs that you've done and why? Being being a doctor in the kids' hospital um, because I realised that what I could do was help liberate people from what was holding them back. What do you mean by that? Well, um, one night this kid came in having had a history of fevers and the parents were at their wit's ends because every time they'd go to the doctor, the fever would go away and then they came, then the kid came in with a fever and the, the parents were so distraught that I actually asked the nurse if she could make us a cup of tea, which normally I wouldn't do, but she knew it was a special. And then we had a cup of tea and I spent a long time on them um, to relax them down and calm them down because the whole family was really upset. And they said, but what could it be? I said, look, I can spend an hour telling you all the possible things it could be, or you can be back here in half an hour with an X-ray and I'll give you the answer sooner. And then our next patient came in, off they went, and then uh, there was an ex somebody put an X-ray up on a board and somebody was walking past and said, hey, Carl, you hit the jackpot. And so I finished with my patient uh, that I was. I looked at it and there was this beautiful little pneumonia. By beautiful, it'll make sense. So I called the parents in and I said, look, this is the good news and the bad news. The bad news is that your child has had a rolling pneumonia. The good news is that we bring you and we admit you and your child overnight, give you industrial grade antibiotics and it's fixed and nobody dies and everybody's happy and they burst into tears and I burst into tears. And so at that moment, I realised that the reason I became a doctor was so that I could help liberate people from what was holding them back. Yeah. And I mean, you've been incredibly successful. You've reached so many people. I know you've got like 4.5 million likes on TikTok, which you only just started in 2020. How are you finding that shift into new mediums of communication as well? TikTok is necessary because... Um, two-thirds of the people are under the age of 20, two-thirds are female, and in one study in their first half hour on TikTok, this is a little while back, 90% were told lies about COVID and two-thirds were told lies about the vaccine. That's so a lot. All, yeah, so all that is needed for evil to win is that good people do nothing. So I thought I'd go in there and start saying, yes, there is a disease called COVID, it really, it's not the flu, and yes, get vaccinated. And have you expanded beyond talking about COVID as well? What are some of your favourite topics to talk about on TikTok? Well, I I have realised that there's a kind of a, a Venn diagram, you know, about Venn diagrams? Yeah. Can you explain a Venn diagram for our audience who might not have come across it in school yet? Oh, I hope I give a good explanation. So a Venn diagram is basically if you imagine two circles and then they overlap a bit and that will tell you kind of three different things, kind of topic number one, topic number two, and then where they intersect and overlap. And that gives you a third topic that has a little bit from one and a little bit from two. Yeah, so you might have um, people who go to high school and people who go to primary school and if, if they overlap, how many, if, if they are the only child in the family or so forth. So in the case of um, uh, the disinformation, there seems to be a perfect Venn diagram overlap, 100% overlap between 
um, denying climate change, denying the vaccines, um, cryptocurrency and really bad spelling and grammar. (laughs) Wow. So you kind of like look at those topics and try and battle misinformation in those particular spaces? Uh, I do what I can, um, especially on Twitter and TikTok. They, they each have their own advantages in talking with people. At the moment on my Twitter feed, there's a really big discussion about how come when making a cup of tea, the tea changes colour or draws, the liquid changes colour really slowly with rainwater but really quickly with government water. Oh, I didn't realise anyone was making cups of tea with rainwater. Oh, I guess if you live on a property and you have a rainwater yeah. tank. <laughs> yeah, and so they, they go into town and they make another cup of tea with government water. Do we know the Amazing. answer? No, of course not. <laughs> but we, we're, we're heading towards it. Uh, that also brings me to my next question, which I guess you've answered. Do you sometimes not know the answer to all the many, many questions that people ask you? Always. Um, uh, I don't know is the straight answer. And then the next grade up from that is, I don't know, but here's a working solution. So uh, these things go through three different possible grades. One is a conjecture where you come forward with an idea, any idea, and you've got zero proof for it and you can't see how to prove it. Two is what we call a hypothesis where you, you got to guess and you kind of got an idea of how you might be able to prove or disprove it. And number three, the highest level, is a the theory. Now, a bit of an alert here. In, to the general public, a theory is just a wild guess. But to a scientist, a theory is a full and complete explanation. The theory of electrodynamics or electro or, or, or gravity or um, relativity. Yeah, so um, I, I can normally give a bit of a conjecture as to what might be causing answer, pointing out that I do not know. <laughs> I'm just sort of working from basic principles. Amazing. Uh, so I hear that you did some research into belly button lint. Can you tell us about that? Some research. Come on, <laughs> Dr. Rad. I am a world expert on belly button love. Um, uh, and somebody rang in saying, where does belly button fluff come from and why is it always blue? And I said, I have no idea. I then went looking in the scientific literature and all I could find was an article in 1987 in the British Medical Journal saying that in the same way that all roads lead to Rome, on your tummy, all the hairs lead to your belly button. And that was it. (laughs) <laughs> and then about, so I went back on air and then continued. And then about a month later, somebody said, hey, what is it we, why do we get a belly button? I said, well, this is what I could read in the Med- British Medical Journal. Apart from that, I got nothing. And then a month later, somebody rang in and said, I got lots of belly button fluff. So following what you said about belly button and hair, I shaved all the hair in a 10 centimetre circle around my belly button and suddenly I got no more belly button fluff. And then as the belly button... Um, as a belly button hair, as the hair around it grew back, I got more and more belly button fluff. So we started off a survey and we f- and did our own research and we found that uh, two-thirds of people get belly button fluff. Number two, number two the average generator of belly, belly button fluff, the, the really strong one, is a slightly overweight, middle-aged male with a lot of abdominal hair. Um, and then we got an electron microscope. Now, here's some very important scientific advice for the future careers of our audience. 
Now, remember this and never forget it. Anything, no matter how boring, always looks better with an electron micrograph <laughs> photograph. And so we use an electron micrograph and we found that um, belly button fluff is made up of fibres of clothing held together by dead skin cells. Uh, and um, the reason it's blue is that most people wear blue clothing. Now, I'm oh. wearing red, but I did do the experiment of wearing red shirts, red underwear and red trousers and red socks, and for a brief while I had red belly button fluff. <laughs> but in your case, you've got blue and green and a bit of red, uh, but in general, blue is the major colour we humans like to wear. I don't really have a lot of tummy hair, so I actually don't get a lot of belly button fluff. Ah, there was a young case of a young woman who um, used to, who had no uh, abdominal hair and used to get a lot of belly button fluff because she liked to wear really tight t shirts. Ah, and, and way in. yeah, because, uh, through, through the friction. And then she put a ring in her navel, which lifted the t shirt up like a little tent pole. And suddenly she got no more belly button fluff. Amazing. Uh, well, we've got a couple of topics that we want to run through with you today. The first one that we're going to look at is Earth and science. So classic question, where did our universe begin? Um, we're pretty confident that it began with the Big Bang. We have a few pieces of data that tell us this, the expansion of the universe, the fact that the universe is expanding, the fact that of the atoms, 90% are hydrogen, and 10% of helium and the rest is just sort of rounding errors. Um, thirdly, um, that we've got the cosmic background radiation, look it up in Wikipedia. Um, but remember, the motto of the scientists is that we hold our theories on the tips of our fingers so the merest breath of new data will blow them away. But so at the moment we're very confident that the universe began 13.8 billion years ago. We have no idea what came before it, although if you press a cosmologist, astronomer, astrophysicist very hard, they'll say, yeah, I think there was something before it, but we have zero proof. Mm. Okay. Well, I always hate that answer because I, I love to know, but uh, I guess that's just one of the big questions of the universe that we still have to wait on. Do you think we ever will know? Yes. There are several big mysteries right now. Um, dark matter, which makes up 25% of the universe. Dark energy, uh, which is making up about 70% of the universe. What's inside black holes and are they connected? The missing eight dimensions and what was there before the Big Bang. And I reckon by the end of this century, uh, people will be saying to their kids, come in, Jacinta, and stop playing with the dark matter and have lunch. <laughs> I reckon that dark matter will be the first one to be solved and maybe by the end of this century we'll be able to make and use black holes. Um, we had some questions sent in to us from some students that I'm going to play videos of. We've got uh, beautiful videos of them asking these questions. The first one is four questions in one. So it's a lot to remember, but I think you've got them in front of you as well, just in case. <laughs> so, pen, got a pen. Okay, great. Uh, so this one comes to us from Pelican Waters in Queensland. Hi, I'm Abby from Grade 8. Hi, Abby. From the school, Calandra City Private School. And I have four questions. How much does the sky weigh? How does the multiverse work? 
Can a coin falling from the Empire State Building kill you? Could a person in a falling lift survive if they jumped as it hits the ground? Right, Dr. Abby. So luckily I have this... Um, you might think of it as a pen, but I think of it as a non-volatile text insertion and text deletion device that still works even when the internet is down and batteries don't work. <laughs> Amazing thing, this stuff. So the sky, the sky is basically the blue thing we see. Go to my webpage, Dr. Or just type into your search engine, Dr. Avi, ABC, Dr. Carl, blue sky. And I'll give you the answer. It's called um, Rally's Law of Scattering. But, but the straight answer is, 5,000 trillion tonnes of atmosphere. That is the weight of our atmosphere, 5,000 trillion tonnes, so that's the weight of the sky. Is the multiverse real? So the multiverse says that at every instant, things split. In one scenario, I do this, but in another scenario, I do this. And as a result of doing this rather than this, a storm will form here or there in the Amazon and everything is different. Is uh, the multiverse proven? No. But if string theory is correct, then the multiverse is correct. The person to ask is Brian Green, who's doing a tour around Australia in the next few months, G-R-E-E-N-E. Third question, will a coin drop from the Empire State Building kill you? Um, if the coin was uh, Krugerrand, which is a coin made of gold, one ounce, 28 grams. And if it was falling dead flat, straight down, not fluttering like a leaf, it could get up to a couple of hundred, hundred kilometres per hour and it could possibly crack your skull. Um, in Los Angeles every year, several people are admitted to hospital from bullets falling out of the sky, look up the Martin Luther King Hospital. And in some of the Middle Eastern countries, when they fire bullets into the air, uh, people get hurt as they come down. But your average coin, not a one ounce or 28 gram coin of solid gold, your average coin is only a few grams and it'll flutter like this. And in the 1960s, a scientist in Kansas did the experiment of mounting coins onto a, onto a series of balloons. And when they got to a certain height, he had a, a fancy, this is in the 60s and 70s, a fancy system to drop the coin down and he tried to catch them. And uh, they didn't go that fast. They only got up to a speed of about 40 kilometres per hour because they just sort of fluttered like a leaf. And then the Mythbusters actually got coins that were, and fired them at themselves. So the falling coins fluttering got to about 40 kilometres an hour. The Mythbusters fired coins at themselves at 65 kilometres per hour. Ouch, yeah, annoying, no death. Uh, and finally, in a falling lift, um, yes, you could save yourself in a falling lift if the top of the lift was open. And if you could, with your leg muscles, accelerate yourself up to a speed of a couple of hundred kilometres an hour, you can't. <laughs> you can't. However, there was a case of uh, in World War II an aeroplane accidentally ran in a warplane, ran into the Empire State Building. The safety mechanisms on the lifts did not work. There was a person in it, they lifted all the way down to the bottom. Luckily, they were off to the side. Although lifts are incredibly safe. Um, uh, and, and luckily, they were in a corner and there was enough crumpling happening that they did not die. But in general, it's not a good outcome. Mm. But, but lifts are safe. Lifts are incredibly safe. If you ever see any people working on a lift, which I did a little while ago at the ABC, say, hi, um, 
can you show me how the lift works and show me the safety locks? And I'll think, oh, thank God, somebody wants to talk to me and, and learn about the lift. Oh, and they love talking about it. So just ask them. Remember, they can't shoot you for asking. And in, gen- in most cases, they're, they're very thrilled to talk about it. Amazing. I, I want to circle back a little bit to the multiverse question. And could you explain string theory to us a little bit? Because why is the multiverse true if string theory is true? There are three different theories for what's smaller than quarks and electrons. By the way, um, atoms are not taught in school compulsorily until year nine. And my friend Ruben Meerman in Bundaberg is teaching kindergarten kids about atoms and suddenly it all makes sense because if somebody asks you, how come I go out in a cold morning and I breathe out, I can see these little water droplets in the air, you cannot explain that unless you know that atoms exist. Um, and also uh, with the sky is blue, you cannot explain it. Oh, by the way, just a little diversion here. Einstein, uh, uh, Dr. Ray, have you heard of Brownian motion? No. So you look down a microscope and you see all this stuff jittering around? Yeah. And it's called Brownian motion? Yeah, yeah. And then people say, ah, oh, I don't want to see that, and they focus the microscope and they look further to look at what they want to. Einstein, like tens of thousands of people before him, looked down a microscope, saw little particles jittering and said, oh, hang on, yeah, that proves that atoms exist. And he did that in 1905. Read his paper, remarkably little mathematics. In 1905, he came out with five deep findings um, that have got very little mathematics in them, each one of which could have won a Nobel Prize. That was truly his golden year. Getting back to the multiverse. So if quarks and electrons are made of smaller particles, they might be, they might not be, we don't know. No, nothing to do with the multiverse. If quarks and electrons are made up of uh, quantum particles, look it up in Wikipedia, quantum vacuum, look it up in Wikipedia, quantum vacuum. If, if that's the case, nothing to do with the multiverse. But if the universe started off with 12 dimensions, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, and we're left with only four dimensions to, today, the other ones went away, so that's space going this way, that way, that way, that way, left, right, up, down, and and backwards, forwards, and time, they're the four dimensions of space. If we have the original universe starting up with 12 dimensions and eight of them went away, and if there are things called strings, which are eight-dimensional objects, it's hurting my head already, but when they interact with our universe of four dimensions, create these one-dimensional strings, and if vibrations run up and down, then mathematics, 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 there and by the way, when the vibrations run up and down, they create particles in the same way that the floppy tentacle of an octopus runs electricity backwards and forwards and then stiffens where they meet, and suddenly the octopus has got an elbow. If the particles, if the vibrations run up and down these strings, then because of the fancy mathematics, which I can't understand, the multiverse is real, and there is something like one followed by 500 zeros universes, but we've got no proof. There's, Ask Brian Green about it. He's a guy. <laughs> it, it sounds like there's just so much maths involved and so much that maths can tell us about the universe as well. Yes. Um, maths takes you places where other things cannot, and it's just a language. You, I mean, you don't say, oh, wow, that person speaks Mandarin. Gee, they must be really intelligent. No, it's just another language, you know. Uh, so it all depends if you like it or not. Uh, do mass at school. Don't fall behind. You'll love it. So I want to move on now to our second topic, which is living world. 
And I want to ask you a little bit about food production. It's something that, you know, we've seen a lot of interesting things happen recently with, for example, the floods that happened in New South Wales, and that's really changed how we've been able to access food. Um, what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about in food production as we move into the future? Uh, firstly, that um, uh, 40% of all the food that we make is wasted. So 40. you start off 40, 40. So you start off with producing the food and then maybe warehousing it and then storing it and then distributing it and then getting it to the final uh, distribution points in the shops and then finally to you in your fridge. And in the poor countries, that's where they lose most of the food. And in the wealthy countries, that's where we lose most of our food. So you come home and you think, oh, there's nothing there but soybeans and carrots and cabbage and spinach. Oh, I'm going to throw that in the bin and buy a pizza instead. Yeah, I know. So firstly, we can do a lot better with the food. Secondly, we are already in the process of moving away. We're just doing the beginning baby steps. We're moving, moving away from getting meat from animals to growing it in vats in the laboratory with genetic engineering. Um, thirdly, in Australia, we make enough food for you know to be able to feed 80 million people, but our population is only 25 million. So if you speak to the farmers and the agricultural scientists and all the people representing them, the amount of support that the federal government and the state government gives to the farmers is pathetic. It's, it's nothing. They're not funding the research and because they're saying, we, we've got too much food, we, we, we export enough, we don't need to, we won't waste our money on that, and yet we need to to make our food production better. The Australian continent land soil situation is messy. Australia is the only continent on Earth that is, apart from Antarctica, it's the only inhabited continent, continent that is not making more dirt. So every other continent has mountains and the rain falls and the rain turns rock into dirt and we're not making any dirt, we're just losing it. So we've got to be better, at, at, and, we, and we can be. We just need uh, to vote in politicians who will see agriculture as the complicated thing that it is. And by the way, agriculture is not just some people um, sticking some soil in the ground. It's a whole complex system, and the farmers are in there for the long term, for generation to generation. I've got an email question from a student for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do wombats have a hard back? Like when they squish dogs, is it something that's evolved since dingoes came or was it there before? If there was, why? So wombats are these creatures um, that live in burrows and I've written a story on it which you can get for free. Um, it's called, look up ABC Dr. Carl Wombat and maybe you can put in square poo. Do you know that <laughs> wombats have yes. cubic poos? Yeah. Well, why do you reckon they have cubic poos? I think they have cubic bowels and a slightly cubic bumhole. <laughs> yeah, because uh, some people say that they have cubic poos so that they won't roll away, so they can use it as a way of marking their territory, but there are lots of animals that mark their territory with their poo, and none of them have cubic poos except for the wombat, and the latest research fits in exactly with what you're saying. They've got special structures in their large intestine to make them come out cubic. And um, there was a case of a young man, about 17 years old, at a school 
in Victoria who used to sneak out at night as a boarding school and go down the wombat holes with his whole body. Not I just didn't realise they were that big. Yeah, he was a skinny guy. <laughs> not, not, not just his head, not just his feet, but his feet and a couple of metres. Wow. And he wasn't being mean to the wombats and they didn't try to kill him. They, they have a hard back so that if a smaller creature comes in that's aggressive and wants to uh, attack them, they shrink down, let it climb on their back and then squash it up. So I don't have a good answer for that question. I'll fail you, sorry. <laughs> but I did tell you something about wombats. It was still very interesting. Uh, we now have another student question that's a video that comes to us from Burke Public School in Surrey Hills. Hi, Dr. Carl. My name is Kat. Hey Erica from Burt Public School, I'm in Year 5 and my science question for you is how can some animals like lizards regrow their body parts? How can some animals regrow their body parts? Well, um, you start off in humans, oh sorry, the answer, stem cells being guided to what they need to do. So let's start. So you start off, we all start off as a single fertilised egg, which then split into two, into four, into eight, into 16, and you get the placenta and the uterus and the embryo and the umbilical cord. And you're looking at this little tiny creature growing and there are different types of stem cells. A stem cell can turn into anything. So right at the very beginning, You've got stem cells that can make every single structure in the body. And then after a little while, they can make only, say, nerves or the gut or the skin cells, and then they keep on specialising, and then sometimes you lose the ability to keep on doing that. So what you can do is, because all the instructions are there in the DNA, they're still there, they haven't gone, you can go and trick yourself into um, going back and growing all those structures again by having stem cells. So your classic case is when, say, a, a salamander might lose a limb and it's just sort of chopped off a limb. And then the cells in the stub then reorganise themselves and electricity is involved. There are electrical currents called stump currents that help guide, and they're only one part of the whole equation, the cells going into stem cells to grow, oh, we've got to grow some bone, I've got to grow some nerves, a bit of connective tissue here, got to have some blood vessels, and there's all these complicated things that have been grown in the right order, and these creatures, the salamanders, they can grow back their body parts, even down to the fingernails and the, and the colour of the fingernails, whereas other creatures are more specialised and can't go back. So we can do it to some degree, with uh, some of our cells in our mouth. They keep on dying and regrowing every day and a half. Brain cells, less so, and everything is sort of in between. So we have some degree of stem cell regrowth, but if you lose a finger, if you lose the tip of a finger as a very young child, you can grow it all back. But if you're a little bit older, you can't grow it all back. Um, I want to move on now to climate change. Uh, what are some of the Earth's resources and how... Actually, no, I'm going to start with what is climate change? Um, the climate is always changing for three major reasons. It's called the Milankovitch effect. 
M-I-L-A-N-K-O-V-I-T-C-H, a Serbian astronomer of the 1920s, who worked out that the Earth's orbit did three things as the Earth went around the sun. Firstly, the orbit changed from circular to elliptical and back again on a 100,000-year cycle. Secondly, on a 42,000-year cycle, the tilt of the Earth varied from 41.5 degrees, no, sorry, 24.5 degrees to 21.5 degrees, and that affected the amount of sunlight landing on the Earth. And then thirdly, as the sun was going around the Earth, the uh, tilt of the Earth slowly swept out a circle on 24,000 years. The Earth tilting backwards and forwards, that was a 42,000-year cycle. So over the last couple of million years, we've had ice ages firstly coming for 42,000 years on and then off again, and then for the last million years, 100,000 years of ice age, then off again for 20,000 and 100,000 years of ice age. Climate change is where we have pumped so much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere um, that we have changed the temperature of the lower atmosphere and the upper ocean significantly. Like we're not changing the temperature of the whole earth, like down in the core, we're not affecting that. That's 6,000 kilometres away. But the bottom uh, eight kilometres of atmosphere and the top one kilometre of ocean, we've warmed that up by one degree at an enormous rate, uh, very, very quickly, faster than we've measured ever in the last four million years. And we've done this with greenhouse gases, which act like a one-way valve, they, the, we're currently pumping 38 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, um, and it acts like a one-way valve. The heat comes in, can't come out. Um, I've written about this in my little book, Why. Uh, and the amount of heat added to the atmosphere is 600,000 Hiroshima bombs of heat per day. So it sounds like pretty uh, worrying stuff. What does but we that- can't fix it. We can fix it. So what what does that mean for the future and what do you have to say about the future as well? Um, okay, here comes the THOM, which stands for take-home message. For those people who are following the TLDR or <laughs> too long didn't read, we can stop and reverse rising carbon dioxide levels and climate change and we can bring the conditions back to what they were in the 20th century using today's technology and we can pay for it with half the money that we give away for free to the fossil fuel companies. So the fossil fuel companies get eight cents in every dollar you earn. Did you know that you give eight cents out of every dollar to the fossil fuel companies in the world? Why? Because they told the governments of the world that they wanted and out of a total world budget of $85 trillion, Australia makes about one and a half. The fossil fuel companies get $6 trillion a year for free. Wow. That's 8% of the world budget they get given for free. That's four times the world military budget, five times Australia's GDP, 85 times what we spend in space. All we do is take 4% of that back. They're still making huge profits. And then we can stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Two places, three places to go, four places. Um, my little book of climate change science, it's 10 bucks, it's cheap. Second, drawdown.org. It's drawdown.org um, and re read the documents there. It'll take you about three hours. For the, that's international. For the Australian point of view, go to bze.org.au, beyondzeroemissions.org.au and finally read the book, The Climate Change War by, um, who's the guy who came up 
with um, the hockey stick graph. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, Michael Mann. So read that. The bottom line is that we can fix global warming and we can do most of it within 15 years. Wow. The only thing stopping us, the uh, see, this is what the fossil fuel companies want us to believe, that it's too late, right? And it's not too late. We can stop and reverse it right now. And there's none of this, let's adapt to the climate changing climate. No, let's take it back. I can't wait for that personally. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Carl, and for sharing all of your incredible insights with us. Um, the answer often was, I don't know as well. Don't <laughs> And a huge thank you to all the schools and students that have joined us today. It's been such a pleasure having you with us, and I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Remember that we have a bunch of free digital events at the Sydney Opera House that are happening across the year. Um, there's going to be a Lego workshop this week, which should be so much fun. There are live backstage tours of the Opera House, creative writing workshops, and workshops on Aboriginal perspectives, and all of them are free for schools, so make sure that you head to the Sydney Opera House website to sign up and don't miss out. That was everything. Thank you for joining us again, and we hope to see you at the next one. Bye. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Arty Farty, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening.